Welcome to Restoration. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, for you moms in the room, we love you. We're glad you're here. Um, and uh, we're just so thankful for you and what you mean to us. I mean, I dressed up for us and for you today. Um, someone said that, hey, you look really respectable from the waist to the neck. So <laughs> I got that going for me. Uh, so good to have you. Uh, happy Mother's Day. I know that many of you have things planned and um, some exciting days uh, planned together. Um, I know also that Mother's Day can be also be a time of um, maybe some pain and some loss and, and those things as well. And so we really recognize there's just a whole wide range of emotions. And so maybe today could be um, a time of healing. Maybe there's a, a, a reconciliation that can happen. Uh, maybe there's just a, just a genuine gratitude to God for what you've had and, and what you have. And, and so we're just so glad you're here um, and we just, we're just excited for the day that you could have together. Um, I just wanted to say, is we, I have a couple of announcements before we get started. And, uh, but we'd like to take our offering at this point, too. And so uh, while you're all just kind of seated, and I'm going to just share with you a few things that are happening. Um, the offering comes by, and if you want to be a part of that, great. Um, and if you're new, um, we're just glad you're here. So just let that go by. Um, if you are new... Um, and, and or if you're, you're recently new and you never picked up our thank you for coming envelope, we have a thank you for coming envelope out on our info table. Um, and it's just, it's a Mother's Day gift if you're new and your mom. <laughs> but it's just a great cup of coffee we'd love for you to have and just thanks for coming. Um, but a couple of things we've got coming up. We've got a baptism Sunday coming up in June. If you're thinking about being baptized, you want to be baptized. Um, Dan talked about baptism a couple weeks back, and we would just love to walk with you into what that means um, uh, and, and as we prepare for June 18th. So if you're interested in that at all, there's a connection card in your row. You can just put your name down, maybe your phone number or an email address, and just write baptism. Um, and we are is building a, a crew of people that want to be baptized that day. We'll do a little ceremony right after the service, right out front. And so love to have you there for that. Um, we've got some summer events that we're working on as a church. We always try to get together. There's usually food involved, if not always. Um, one of those things is actually Memorial Day. Uh, we recognize that it's just kind of a crazy time, and um, you got graduations and all this stuff happening. Uh, but Memorial Day weekend, we just get together. We're going to have a big old pizza picnic afterwards. And so love for having you there for that. Um, Nicaragua trip is forming. If you're thinking about going, um, talk to Dan, talk to myself. We are forming that crew for a, a trip this September, and we'd love to have you involved if you'd like to be involved. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And then our children's ministry is growing. And some of you know this. You drop your kids off, you're like, whoa. Um, so if you would love to like jump in for a week um, at, a, at a time and just kind of help out, be a part of that, any people that teach or people that kind of just be a part of that, we would love to have you there for that. So will you do me a favor? I mean, you guys just, you don't look as lively as you need to look. I just got to be honest with you. You look a little like, well, it's just Mother's Day. No, it's Mother's Day, okay? So I need you to stand up, say hi to someone next to you, maybe a happy Mother's Day, and then we'll get started, okay? We've been in a series called No Plan B, 
And what we're doing is we're re-looking at what many of us have come to know as the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is this moment where Jesus gathers with the 11 disciples after his resurrection, and he gives them a new mission. He gives them this, this kind of a, a way to live life together before he leaves them. And, and for many years, uh, we've called this the Great Commission. And a lot of times, I think that we read this um, we hear different things taught about it. We read this in, in certain ways, and we definitely read it with an American Western mindset, very individualistic. And so what we're doing is we're trying to like maybe kind of repackage it and understand that this was God's, this was God's plan to use people in community together to accomplish his mission. And that was his plan A, and there's no plan B. And a lot of times we, we try to like, oh, well, I, I want to do this a little differently. I think this works out a little differently here and there in different cultures. And, but really, I think that for us to come back and look at this again as a community is really important. And so I'm going to read it again. There's about four or five verses, and then we're going to jump in, okay? Let me read this. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, initially, when we were putting this teaching series together, um, I was going to talk about um, all authority and power that Jesus had and that he would be with the disciples and just how beautiful that picture was, you know, of this, just the comfort of knowing that, that, that Jesus be with, with them always to the very end of the age. And that very end of the age is a very Jewish expression. It's just this idea of the, the, the full spectrum of what God is doing in God's timeline. And I thought, man, that would be really exciting to talk about that. But the more I read this, and I just kept rereading it, the more certain words popped out to me. And I thought it would be really important for us to lean in on those. And so, and I read this, I mean, here we have the 11 disciples together on a mountainside with Jesus. And he, and he uses a lot of words that, um, that sometimes I think we miss over. He mentions they or them four or five times. And then, and then in verse 19 and 20, his command to them is to them as a group. It's almost like you could re, reread this Therefore, you all, y'all, <laughs> go and make <laughs> disciples. And then he says, and I will be with y'all to the very end of the age. And I think a lot of times we read this as individuals. Oh, God's going to be with me. And I need to go make disciples on my own. And I need to do all this stuff on my own. See, this, this series we've been in has been really important because I think it's kind of reshaping how we look at this. I mean, is this really the end game right here? Us gathering together on a Sunday morning, you know, once or twice or maybe three times, 
for your biggest hinder a month? You know, is this, is this what it's all about? And then we just kind of go back and do life. We talked the first week about this amazing uh, experience that Jesus led his disciples. He takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And, and right in front of this huge structure called the Rock of the Gods, where, where they worshipped Zeus, people worshipped Zeus there, and they worshipped the, the god of Pan, and they, they worshipped all these different gods. And, and there was this huge gaping hole, and, and, and there's this water that they couldn't even measure how deep this went, and they called it the Gates of Hades. And the, the belief was that Pan would come out once a year at the beginning of spring, and, and there was this huge festival and this ritual, and all this stuff would go on. It was pretty, pretty crazy, pretty dark. And Jesus stands in front of all this, and he says to the disciples, on this rock, I will build my church. And it was this very aggressive, very, like, we're taking back places on this earth that God has a mission, and that is to reclaim things. And we talked about baptism the next week. We talked about death and life and new, new life and this old life that, that goes away when we come to know Jesus. And last week, we talked about teaching and practice. I don't know if you remember, we talked a lot of quotes. We talked about brain science. It was super boring for some of you, but super awesome for some of us. And we talked about what practice means, and that we're not just meant to be transformed by getting information. But transformation actually happens when we practice. And Jesus says over and over again about practice. Well, this week, I think he has a lot to say to us about the community in which we practice. And, and I find it really interesting. So when you get to this point in the story, Jesus is gathering with the 11 on a mountainside. And they have a whole bunch of history together. They have three years of history together. They went everywhere together. They traveled together. They went to all these different places. Like I mentioned, Caesarea Philippi. They were in Jerusalem together. They were in Galilee together, Samaria together, all over the place. They ate together. They slept next to each other on the ground. They, they did stuff that he taught them lessons together. He encouraged them. He rebuked them. He did all this stuff with them all the time. That's a lot of experience together. There's a lot of connection there. And I think that there's two reasons why this moment is really, really significant. I think one of them is, is I think that you and I really don't understand what family was like back then. See, what Jesus does is he totally redefines all the disciples' identity, in fact, who their, their, their family was, who their community was. Because back in those days, back in Jesus' day, it was about group loyalty. Everything was about group loyalty. I mean, there was no individualism. Your identity was tied to your family. Everything you did was for the betterment and the honoring of your family. And if you did something that didn't honor your family but shamed your family, that was like the worst thing you could think of doing. 
something that shamed your family. We have this joke in our family whenever, we're a very sarcastic family, and so when our kids were, you know, growing up and doing like choir concerts and stuff, we would just pull them aside and be like, okay, don't shame your family. You know, it was like a, like a fun, like, go get them, you know, <laughs> but it was don't shame your family. And so, but it was a joke. We always laughed about it, but it was, this is really true in the ancient Near East. Family was everything, and there was a strong kind of group mentality. You and I grew up with very individualistic mentality. It's about pursuing your dreams and following your heart, right? And hopefully your family backs you, right? And if not, it's okay. You don't need them because it's, it's all about your life and my life and our careers and our dreams and our hopes. But back then, that's not how it was. See, back then, think about threads and ropes. I mean, think about uh, how a society is knit together. In our society, there's just a lot of individualism. So think about a lot of threads. In, in, in Jesus' day, it was about ropes, and, and threads were trying to twine together, and you were the son of somebody. You were known as the son of somebody. I would be known as son of Wes, and, 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 and my identity and my my, uh, my whole life trajectory was about fulfilling the honor of my family. I was given a career, okay? I was given a bride. That's how it would work. And so when Jesus enters the scene, he turns all of this upside down. I mean, it's, it's, it's a society centered around the father. The father was the center of the, fa- the family. Happy Mother's Day right? I mean, that's how it worked. And, and since the father had the hub, especially in Roman society, in Roman society, fathers had the power of life and death. So if a child was born and it was deformed, or maybe it was a girl, the dad could turn its back on the child and the child would be taken away, never to be seen again. And so your whole goal in your life was to honor your father's name to honor your family, to do your father's will, to bear children and continue to the family lineage. And, and chances are, in those day and age, you were, you were really close because of bloodlines and things like that. Your, chances are you were closer to your siblings than you were even to your mother. Happy Mother's Day, Right? I mean, you were just connected to them a little bit because you knew that your, your bloodline was more closely connected to your siblings. And so Jesus shows up and he redefines kinship and he redefines the identity that the disciples have with their kin. Starts like this, Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Check this out. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he replies, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. So if you're Mary (laughs) and you hear this, you're probably not so stoked on that answer. That's kind of a brutal answer. I mean, in an honor-shame, family-first culture, Jesus pulls that out. And he's redefining the social group. He's redefining the social group that is the most important to a follower of Jesus' identity. Check this out. Luke 11, 
gets even better. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. And, and you, you would think that he would say, thanks, you too. Nope. He replies, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. I mean, I mean, I know this is, I didn't plan on this being Mother's Day. You're thinking to yourself, man, this is the worst Mother's Day message ever. So think about a strong uh, group culture in a weak group culture. We have a very weak group culture in our day and age. I mean, if the group does not serve our needs, well, we can find another group. Back then, it was totally different. You served the needs of the group. Your, your dreams and your ambitions and all those things, they weren't even a thought. You did what the group needed most, the family needed most. Check this out, Luke 14. This is another example. Large crowds here were, were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This whole idea is an abandonment of yourself, this idea of Jesus being Lord, and he, he called out all the identities that people had connected to their family. Now, a lot of times we think this is that we take this as a, a very emotional word. This word hate is an emotional word. For them, it was a volitional word. So, so this is saying this is, that Jesus is basically saying this family of mine that's rooted around obeying the Father is more important than the family that you already have. That's what he's saying. It's pretty heavy words for a culture that is very interested in their family lineage, very interested in, in, in preserving and honoring their family. Now, we kind of have this too a little bit. You hear a lot. Um, Dan and I were even talking about this this week, this whole idea of, of, you know, blood comes first, you know, this mentality that, that you know, you know this, your blood, so I do whatever I can for you. It's just kind of like that idea. But for Israelite ears, this was super offensive. Now, Jesus is saying that your family doesn't define you. There's a new identity. There's a new thing that makes you tick. And that might be a different family. Now, that's great news if, if your family, for some of you, that maybe you go, man, that is really welcome news that my family doesn't define me. Listen to this, John 1. He kind of redefines kind of how we relate to each other. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will. Notice that idea of the Roman culture in there, but born of God. So children of God. So we hear this and we know this, but we're not really sure what this significance is. Of being in a different family of being children of God. Being, Paul uses this image all the way through, adoption, and how beautiful picture, this picture was for Paul. 
and how Roman adoption was just such an amazing thing. So that's the first thing I think about when I think about these guys on this hillside and Jesus telling them what their mission is. I think about what they came from and this families and how some of them, they, they dropped their nets, you know? We hear the, the story of Jesus saying, come follow me, and some of them left their dad <laughs> at the fishing shore and follow Jesus. And how kind of scandalous that was. The second thing I think of is how crazy this group of the disciples was. I mean, a lot of times we don't really think about how diverse they were. I mean, yeah, they were all guys, and some of them were Jewish, uh, like Torah-observing teenage guys that that worked hard. They lived up in Galilee. They were a part of what we call the Gospel Triangle. I mean, they were very Torah-observant Jewish uh, young men, probably pretty good kids, right? I mean, we know that Peter, James, and John fishing on the Galilee with their dad, that whole deal. But then we got this guy named Matthew, who's a tax collector, and Jesus calls him too. Not only does Jesus call him, but he he says, I'm going to come over to your house for dinner, and he comes over to his house for dinner, and he's sitting there eating with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. Now, you know, some of you know that a tax collector was basically a Benedict Arnold, someone who 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 was sticking it to their own people by working for the Roman government, and so Jesus actually calls Matthew into the fold to be a disciple. And I can just imagine the, these Torah-observant Jewish guys that are like, what? What is that all about? But it, it actually gets worse. It actually gets crazier. Matthew 10, listen to this. It says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. And I so, so many times we read this and we just like kind of gloss over it. But Simon, who is called Peter, we know about that guy. His brother Andrew, James, son son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, right? James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's talk about Simon the zealot. What's a zealot? Actually, the, the word for a zealot is sicaria. Now, if some of you saw the movie Sicario with Emily Blunt, it's, it's actually means, this word actually means dagger men. These are assassins. These are guys who would, who would hide a dagger under their cloak, get in close to Roman officials, and stab them, kill them. They were hired assassins. They had a certain political view, wouldn't you say? They kind of had a certain political view. So you throw some, some Torah-observant Jewish guys in the mix, you throw a tax collector in there, and you throw a zealot in there, and things are going to get dicey. I mean, this group does not agree on things at all. Picture this. Picture throwing, I'm just throwing this out there, a, a dude with a big old truck, a gun rack, make America great hat, in a group, okay, with maybe a Hollywood elite liberal Michael Moore type guy, and they're all sitting around listening to the teachings of Jesus going, hey, what do you think he meant by that? Do you think there would have been tension? Do you think they would have talked about politics, maybe? Maybe a little bit? Nobody thinks that? 
I mean, Matthew's like, well, the Romans aren't so bad, right? And, and the zealot's like, let's kill them all. And then we haven't even talked about the sons of thunder. There's two of these guys that are called the sons of thunder. That's a cool nickname. I have to be honest with you. Sounds like a Metallica album. So I'd be totally down with that. So, so listen to these two guys. I mean, you got Peter. We know he's a loudmouth, right? Thomas is kind of like a sheepish kind of dude. You know, we know he's kind of like, you know, the guy that's kind of quiet, reclusive thinker. Then you have the Sons of Thunder. Listen, the Sons of Thunder, there's this part where these two guys, they, they leave a village and they ask Jesus, hey, can we call down fire from heaven and destroy it? <laughs> Are you kidding me? These guys are a little amped up. They're like the road rage disciples. And, and Jesus is like, were you not around at all for that Sermon on the Mount deal? Because that was... So listen to these guys. This is a total Mother's Day piece too. You're going to love this, moms. Matthew 20. I promise I didn't do this on purpose. It just so happens, okay? It says, then the mother of, of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked for a favor. <laughs> love this. Can you just picture this? What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus says, you don't know what you were asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. I mean, that's just a, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Okay, can you imagine this scene, right? So you've already got the zealot who's hiding a dagger. You've got Peter who's a loudmouth. You've got all these different guys. And then you've got these two sons of Zebedee who are hiding behind mommy to get a favor from Jesus. Dude, the group's mad, right? Like, what are these two up to? Sons of Thunder are not very thundery behind, behind mommy, but, um, and happy Mother's Day again. Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and there are high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to, listen to this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He's just turning everything over. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did, not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is, what is my point with all of this? Two things come to mind when I think about this, this moment that Jesus has with the 11 disciples. One, he totally turned upside down everything they believed about their group identity totally changed everything. Their identity was no longer at this point in their family lineage. It was no longer in honor, shame, culture when it came to their families. They had become a new family. He'd called them out of that old way of thinking and into a new way of thinking, which is really, really scandalous. The second thing was they were a crazy, mixed up bunch of misfits. And they had to figure out how to forgive each other, love each other, encourage each other, have each other's back. They frustrated each other. They made each other mad. They disagreed. They came from different backgrounds. And here they were. And Jesus said, I will be with you all 
the very end of the age. And I think that has a lot for us today. Because I think Jesus redefines your and mine. If we call Jesus our rabbi and we are following him and apprenticing him, Jesus will redefine and reshape your family. Not your family of origin, but the people that you actually follow Jesus with become something super, super special. In the best community, okay, just like the disciples, the best community in your discipleship to Jesus is not the one that you create and you choose. It's the one that you fall into and discover. Matthew didn't have a choice of his community. The sons of thunder were in it, man. He was stuck with them. And Peter was always piping off, and they're like, what is with this guy? And that was, just, that was just the one that they were put into. And I think the hard part for us, and I want to kind of throw this up on the screen, there's the ideal of community that we have in our mind, right? This ideal of community on one side. On the other side, we have the messy reality of community. And I believe that real discipleship, real apprenticing of Jesus happens in the middle of that. That we want a perfect community, right? We want everybody to be nice to each other and no drama and no issues. And, and someone, you know, there's that person that's always talking, you know, during the group and kind of, you know, or there's the person that seems to be always super needy. Well, if we could just, you know, move them out, then it would be a whole lot easier. We'd get along better. No, no. See, following Jesus is that is that beautiful, weird, hard, awkward spot that's between the ideal community and that messy part. And that's where we have to lean in. See, just a few things as we kind of wrap this up today. The first one I want to share with you is this. And you've heard this before around here. This is nothing new. You cannot follow Jesus alone. And so I believe that community is not optional for discipleship to Jesus. It's just not optional. Mother Teresa said that loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Our world right now is so full of loneliness, and yet we're more connected than we've ever been. And we're connected with, you know, Instagram and Facebook and text and all this stuff. And we're just so connected in this digital age. It's like unbelievable. It is so hard to explain to my own kids what life was like 10 years ago, let alone 30. I mean, you, you all, as adults, you're just like, remember you got a cell phone? That was like, what? Remember pay phones, right? <laughs> like you have to like, you see those in a movie, you're like, what are those? That's weird. We're so connected. We're more connected than ever. We're more lonely than ever. There's a guy named Sherry Turkle, and she wrote a book called Alone Together, and it's probably one of the most depressing things you'd ever read, so don't read it. But there's a quote from it that I want to show you. It's pretty amazing she, what she writes. She does all this research on the connectivity that we have in our culture and how it's affecting us. Listen to this. She says, we are lonely but fearful of in intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. 
Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. Think about how strange that and true that is, right? We would rather text than talk. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, cyber intimacies become cyber solitudes. How true is that, right? I mean, we all feel that. We all feel that in our, in our rhythm of our life. And so I believe loneliness is this deep ache of our culture. In fact, you know, I was, I was reading a Barna research study that talked about how Christians like to be discipled, how they like to grow in their faith. The biggest category of Christians said that they would rather grow in their faith alone, by themselves, listening to a sermon, reading a book, kind of the stuff we talked about last week, just information gathering. But that's not how you grow. I mean, we've got to be in relationship together. We've got to be able to be in a place where we can see each other and function as a family, leaning on each other in really difficult times, praying for each other, encouraging each other. The whole New Testament is full of one another's, bearing with each other, giving thanks for one another. Second thing you need to know is this. Community is the context where we are transformed because you Here's the thing. You become like who you hang out with. That's just how it goes. And and when you hang out with people who are intentional about practicing their following of Jesus, you become more of a person who follows Jesus. And and what happens is when you intentionally hang out with people, what what ends up coming up is, is, is exposure. Your life becomes more exposed, and that's super hard. When you hang out with me enough, you get to figure out what really makes me tick, what really makes me mad, what, what my shortcomings are, where I might fudge the truth a little bit. And you could, just, you could start to pick that out. And then if you were really somebody who cared about me, you would point that out. And I would, I would injure you, you know, I would hurt you in ways and you would, you would actually have to like come at me with that and forgive me and we would figure all this out together. The problem is, is that a lot of times we hide and we hide in plain sight and we hide behind social media. We hide behind all these things. And here's the thing that I find the most amazing. This is a truth and I think a lot of us don't really understand it. A lot of us were hurt in relationships. In our lives, somewhere along the line, we were hurt in relationships. But you know how you're, you're healed? The only way you will ever be healed by a hurt relationship is in relationship. You cannot heal in solitude. You will always be wounded. You will always have a wound. And if you stay in isolation, you will never experience healing. And so that, that's why this beautiful picture, we fix our broken parts in community. And it's not perfect. Remember, it's that place between the ideal and the messy, right? 
And sometimes it feels more messy than ideal. But our goal, our, our, we are always shooting for that. We're always shooting for the ideal. Two guys wrote a book called Slow Church. It was a, a big-time success uh, of a book because it, it really kind of, uh, it, it really kind of uh, quenched a thirst that a lot of people had when it came to like being a church community. And I would encourage you to read it if you ever wanted to. Two guys, Christopher Smith, John Pattison, they wrote this. Spiritual formation occurs in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible, listen to that, the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. And that's hard to hear. It's hard for us to hear that because I don't have time for that. I I mean, I just got to make time for that. I've got to, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I want to get to know people. I mean, most people I meet in church are weird I just want to come and hear a message and go and do my thing. And, th- and that's just kind of our mentality. We're, we, we love consuming and leaving. But community is not the same as a group of friends. Let me just throw you a little quick definition of community. Uh, this is a few secular people to put this together. Communities are constituted by physical proximity shared concerns, real consequences, and common responsibilities. Like, we got to be around each other. We got to be pushing towards the same thing. We've got to experience the consequences of what it looks like to be in community together, like the hard, messy stuff. And we have to have things that we both are responsible for in making this happen. These are the, this is the group that sees you on your good days and your bad days. This is where exposure and grace meet, okay? And the last thing I would say as we wrap up is this. Community is the byproduct of commitment. You gotta push in. And for some of us, that's super hard. And, and we don't know, we're, we're kind of caught because we're, we want that, okay? We want to know people, we want to be known. We're aching to be known. And yet, we also want to kind of keep our options open and keep ourselves safe. And so we kind of get caught in this catch-22. And so let me just say this. I'm going to just be honest. If you want to have community with people, if you want to know what it's like to, to know people and to be known and to follow this Rabbi Jesus in your life, and yet it's a once-a-month thing for you. And I'm not saying Sunday morning is community. This is, not, this is not what Jesus is talking about as community. This is like a gathering. We remind ourselves. But th- community happens outside of this. This is like pursuing each other intentionally. And, and, and if you show up once a month, you really don't know people, and, and maybe you catch a podcast and Uh, you're not going to experience that. You're not going to experience what we're talking about here. Like, like we have this trip coming up in September to Nicaragua. And a lot of you are thinking, man, I can't go to Nicaragua. So out of sight, out of mind. 
And that's fine. You can't go. I, we, but here's what we're going to do as a community. As a community, we're going to Nicaragua. As a whole community, there might be only 12 people that actually physically go. But our church is sending 12 people to Nicaragua. We are, they're they're going to be our people, our ambassadors, our, our group, our, our mission in Nicaragua. And we're going to do everything we can to get them there and to root them on and encourage them and hear their stories. And they're going to come back and tell us what God is doing. And it's a beautiful thing. So for some of you in here, I mean, this is this mission of Jesus is not this, oh, you know, it's this this thing where I've got to go make disciples and I've got to do all this stuff and God's going to be with me. No, God's with us together. You know how I know that? It's because when I meet with people one-on-one and in groups and, and they speak into my life and I get to speak into theirs and encourage them and, and there's, some, there's, some, there's some mutuality to it. There's some encouragement there. There's been days when I've been encouraged by so many of you and more so really in the last number of weeks that, than you would actually even believe. Maybe today, for some of you, you have to make the decision that you're going to intentionally pursue this. And maybe between now and the end of summer, I know summer gets crazy, but like, how can the needle move a little bit in your life when it comes to pursuing intentional community? What does that look like? Maybe there's some people in here that you go, man, I would really love to just get to know them and hear their story. Maybe it just starts with that. Hey, I want to take you to coffee. I want to grab a beer with you. I want to have you over for dinner. I just want to hear your story. What's your story? How did you come to know Jesus? Where, where are you at with this whole faith thing? Maybe, maybe they don't know Jesus, you know? Maybe it's just start with coffee, make an effort. Maybe for some of you, you landed at this church. You landed at this church because something relationally blew up at the last church you were at. And I'm here to tell you, bags fly free. You may, have th- you, you may have thought you left those bags there, but you picked them up and you walked into restoration and you're like, I'm my bags. <laughs> That's a metaphor for the fact that you have baggage. <laughs> okay? You have a way of operating in relationship that didn't stop. You brought that here too. And maybe you need to go back and reconcile. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to say you're sorry. Maybe you need to have that connection because guess what? They're part of the y'all too that Jesus is talking about. Wouldn't that be amazing if reconciliation begins to happen outside of me? Like, yeah, you know, I'm sticking. Yeah, here, stay here. We'd love for you to stay here still, okay? But like, like maybe that reconciliation happened. Maybe there's just something that happens in a beautiful way that you couldn't imagine, but it just takes that courage to reach that out. I got to share with you a, a little quick thing before we're done. And I've got this big, huge clock back there now that's just yelling and nagging at me right now. So, um, I'm just going to make it yell and nag at Elliot. All right. Last thing I want to share with you. The last couple of weeks, our staff and leadership was presented with the possibility of something that would have really changed our church. And I'm not going to get into it. 
uh, what it was, but it was just, and it was, it could have been good, could have been bad. We didn't know. Um, it's no longer there as an opportunity. So and if you're getting curious, just deal with it. So the point is, is we began to ask ourselves questions as a church, like, who are we? Like, is this us? Is this new possibility really what we're all about as a church? How would it change us? How would it, how would it, um, how would it steer us maybe slightly off mission? And, and one of the things I kept getting feedback from our staff and our leadership was one of the beautiful things about us as a church, we meet here at the Arvada Center. As you know, it's not our church building. We have a truck out back, a 24-foot box truck that every Sunday somebody drives it here. We unload it. We set all this up, kids' room, this, whatever. Then when you guys are all done eating donuts and you leave, there's a group that's still here. They tear it all down put it in 14 carts, roll it back into a truck and drive back. Okay. That's our church. And people say all the time, like, well, how do you do church? Well, we have to be really intentional. Really intentional. We talk about coffee shops a lot. We talk about pubs a lot. There's sometimes we gather there. There's, there's groups that meet in living rooms and, and there's just a whole bunch of intentionality behind, behind being together as a community. And so what I heard mostly from our staff and leadership was like, that's us. And yeah, it's hard work. And yeah, it takes time. And yes, we have to figure out locations and get people there and communicate. And sometimes we're good at it. Sometimes we're not good at it and all that. All that to say is this, in order to be the kind of church that Jesus says, I will be with you all to the very ends of the age. And this is your mission. We have to be intentional. And we have to step out of our little comfort zones and take another step of courage and another, I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert or wounded or love people, I don't care. There's, there's a next step for you in this following of Jesus. And you cannot take that next step without other people. Can't do it. That's God's plan A. God's plan A is people in your life. Add one, add two, add five. Figure that out together. And, and I promise you, it will change your life. See, I don't believe there's any other institution in our culture that is specifically designed, okay, to remind us that we are not, in fact, the center of the universe besides the church. And when we come, it changes us. And there's something beautiful and hard and wonderful and messy and awesome about it. Let me pray.